0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. John Hamanuk got interested in understanding weather as a little kid when he was sitting in his mom's basement one night waiting for a serious storm to pass. He felt helpless.
0: Like I didn't know what was going on. There was so much wind and banging outside. And what stuck with me in the years to follow was I want to figure this out. These days, John knows which way the wind is blowing. I'm a meteorologist and a storm chaser. When a big storm is brewing, it's go time, no matter how great the distance. Especially in the springtime, it's just you could just have to pick up and get in the car and drive 10 hours if you want to see it. And so the response to that is people are like, you are out of your mind. John chases these storms to do forecasts, to
1: warn people and let them know when to seek shelter, and just to observe the sheer force of nature. To me,
0: the process of their formation is incredible.
1: It requires so many specific conditions for a big storm to happen, especially for the most powerful ones called
0: supercell. Basically, the storm itself is rotating. And so the ingredients that are required for that are so complex but you need just the right amount of moisture, wind shear, and a trigger to get the storm to form.
1: Is it a thrilling experience to be that close to such a force of nature?
0: It absolutely is. It almost feels like sort of an out of body experience when you see like the Grand Canyon for the first time or you're overwhelmed standing out looking onto a vast ocean. When you see a supercell, especially a tornado for the first time, it it really is overwhelming. How so? What's the feeling? Well, it's a mixture of a rush of adrenaline because you know you, the power of what's in front of you. And I would say gratefulness to have the ability to be there to see it and observe it and understand it. But the adrenaline is definitely there as well. It is a very, very powerful thing that you're watching. And so it's humbling. It's definitely adrenaline-filled. But but more than anything, it makes me feel grateful to be able to to be here and see it.
1: When you're not chasing storms, do you get the itch to get out there?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's nothing quite like storm chasing. It really is so fun to be out there, and I get the itch when I'm back just for a couple days, especially in the spring because, you know, this is like prime time season.
1: When you're right there with a storm, does that feel like the most alive you feel? Oh,
0: 100%. 100%. You know, it, it it is difficult to describe. I guess I guess the best way to put it is the process leading up to the storm is is often quite hectic. You know, you're driving, you're you're putting all this work in to understand the roads and the terrain you're in and is the storm gonna form, what do the latest satellite and radar look like and and then the storm forms and it's over this beautiful landscape and you step out of your car and it's just this peaceful oftentimes quiet moment and, and you're, you're watching and, and the motion of the storm in real time is amazing the storm is turning in front of you and you're just watching it rotate and it's it's so peaceful there's no more noise there's no more forecasting there's no more craziness about who's going where and what's happening it just all kind of fades away and I feel like so does everything else I mean in that moment I'm not worried about my bank account or where I'm staying that night or you know who's emailing me. I'm kind of just there in the world watching something amazing in front of me and there's nothing else going on. I'm I'm the most present and calm that I could be in that moment.
1: The thrill of the chase followed by a sense of calm, total focus... A moment of awe? It's something a lot of people look for skydiving, climbing the highest mountain peaks, riding a motorcycle at fast speeds, adventuring to remote parts of the world, pushing the boundaries of safety. On today's episode, what fuels the desire for thrills? And when does the chase for kicks become dangerous and disruptive? Ken Carter is an unlikely candidate to look into this kind of behavior. I am not a thrill seeker. I'm the opposite. I'm a chill seeker instead. Ken is a clinical psychologist. He's a college professor. And even though he couldn't relate to these behaviors, he wanted to understand them. I have students that at the
2: very last minute change their whole schedules clients who decided to get married after dating someone 2 or 3 times and I'm I'm the opposite kind of person where I feel like I don't like a lot of chaos in my life so I was fascinated by people who seem to crave
1: chaos Ken's written a book about this chaos craving it's called buzz inside the minds of thrill seekers daredevils and adrenaline junkies Thrill-seeking falls under the umbrella of something psychologists call sensation-seeking and Ken talk to a lot of people with different passions for the book. One time, when he was in Idaho giving a lecture, people told him he should visit the Perrine Memorial Bridge in Twin Falls. It's the only bridge in North America where you can base jump without a permit year-round. So people come from all over the country to leap off this bridge with a parachute almost 500 feet down. So I drove to the bridge, and
2: I met this guy named Nick. And he was actually testing a parachute for the very first time. It was an old 20-year-old rescue parachute that was slightly younger than he was. And he jumped off the bridge, and I thought his chute opened up just a little bit late before he reached the water. I was able to interview him afterwards and I said, how did you feel as you were falling and falling and you noticed that your chute hadn't opened yet? And he described it as sort of an eerie, sort of surreal, calm feeling where he just was noticing what was happening, which was very different than me as, as a low sensation seeker who might be really overwhelmed in that experience. And that was the thing that really showed me that a lot of these high sensation seekers do feel calm and notice a lot of things that most of us wouldn't in those kinds of experiences.
1: So it's almost like they are in their element, so to speak. They have that sense of really calm, that flow
2: state. And so those high sensation seeking activities bring them that sense of flow.
1: And when you jump off that bridge, there is water underneath, or what are you jumping toward?
2: (laughs) There's water underneath that you can jump into with a parachute, but sometimes people will parasail off to the side of the bridge or bungee jump from the bridge. All sounds awful to me, but people um, love it.
1: Yeah, (laughs) not me. (laughs) (laughs)
2: no yeah definitely count me out
1: i'm the mom who went to like the amusement park with my kids and didn't get on a single ride (laughs) because i'm just like
2: nope i can't do it i just don't have the hardware to run that program right
1: Here's what Ken means by the right hardware. He says people have different tolerance levels for these kinds of experiences. And when you look more closely at what people are looking for, different patterns emerge. Some have a desire for thrill and adventure, like Nick, the base jumper. Others are looking for sensations of the mind and senses people who like to travel or try unusual foods, for example. But how far people will go in terms of seeking out these experiences, how much they are willing to risk, depends on two factors.
2: One is called disinhibition. That's your ability to sort of inhibit your behaviors, Um, People who look before they leap are a little bit more inhibited, for example. And the last one is called boredom susceptibilities, how easy it is for you to get bored, but also how irritated you get when you get bored.
1: And what do we know about sensation seekers, are they different from other people in tangible ways? Yeah. I mean, so it's funny
2: because when I first started researching this, most people thought, oh, these are just extroverted people. But there are a lot of introverts that are high sensation seekers as well. And we do know that there are some biological components to the things that contribute to a person being able to do that. And there are two chemicals that are in our body that seem to contribute to this. One's called cortisol, that's that stress hormone that gets us ready to fight stresses, helps to adjust our body's systems to handle stress in lots of ways by slowing your digestion or revving up your heartbeat. High sensation seekers tend to not produce that much cortisol when they're in these chaotic environments. On the other hand, there's another chemical called dopamine um, This is our body's sort of pleasure neurotransmitter. High sensation seekers tend to produce more of that dopamine in those environments. so when they're in these situations, whether it's a roller coaster or bungee jumping or even you know in an emergency, they tend to produce less stress hormones but more pleasure in those environments and that's sort of what sets them aside from other kinds of people
1: so if they are going down a terrible roller coaster, I would be afraid for my life. I would hate every single second of it, but they might feel happy and they'll love it.
2: Yeah, they feel happy and calm and they actually get more out of it. Like I'm, on the other hand, as a loose sensation seeker, I produce tons of cortisol pretty much all the time. But maybe too much in an experience like a roller coaster, where even though there's some pleasure, I'm too overwhelmed to experience it. And and I'm also not producing that much dopamine. So the high sensation seekers have this really interesting sort of mixture of these chemicals where they're feeling calm and pleasurable in situations that, that may overwhelm most other people.
1: And then how do they feel in a regular situation? So it sounds like you and I are both low sensation seekers, (laughs) just putting that out there. (laughs) And um, so you and I might feel just fine in a regular day in the office type situation. How do high sensation seekers feel In the absence of, you know, stress, chaos, thrill, that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, it really depends upon that, those two last components, the disinhibition and boredom susceptibility. Like there are some high sensation seekers that can tolerate boredom pretty well, and they're not around lots of thrilling things. They're fine. There are other people who have ideas about what to do, and they're so disinhibited that they'll do them without thinking them through.
1: That's Ken Carter. He's a professor of psychology at Oxford College of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. We're talking about thrill-seeking and what drives people to look for an extra dose of excitement in their lives. Thrill-seeking can be dangerous, risky, and sometimes deadly. Mike Hughes was a limousine driver turned stuntman. He built small, sleek-looking rockets and rode inside them as they launched away from Earth. He was obsessed with getting to the edge of the Earth's atmosphere because he was a flat-earther, and he wanted to get a look from far above to prove his point.
3: You know, some people ask me, what brought me to this point, you know, believing in the flat Earth? And I say, well, really? My goal in life was to be the road manager for the Spice Girls, and they broke up, and I didn't know what else to do.
1: From Los Angeles, Avishai Artsy has the strange and tragic story of daredevil Mad Mike Hughes.
4: Mad Mike Hughes built seven rockets and rode in three of them. His final rocket launch on February 22, 2020, ended in his death. He was 64 years old. Justin Chapman is a freelance journalist who'd been following Mike for a while and went out to see the launch in the desert outside Barstow, California.
5: There were about 50 spectators there. There were a couple of live streamers, like YouTubers, some Flat Earth folks, and there was a a TV crew that was filming the launch for a science channel show called Homemade Astronauts.
4: But as soon as the rocket took off, it was clear something was wrong.
5: It launched up into the air and a parachute came dislodged from the rocket and got caught in the thrust, and that floated off to the ground.
4: The rocket did a huge arc. It disappeared into the sky for a moment, and then it started to fall.
5: And as it's coming down, everyone started realizing that his parachutes weren't coming out. Even if they had, at this point, it was gonna be too late, and he nosedived directly into the desert floor and people are wailing and, and crying, and there were kids there, people who knew him, and uh, it was just shock silence for 15 minutes. It's
3: like a lawn dart. You hit the ground at somewhere between 4 and 500 miles an hour. Waldo Stakes was Mike's close friend and collaborator. He taught him how to build rockets. Mike was blasted into a thousand pieces. A thousand little pieces. In fact, when you see the video, you see this black cloud. That's not dirt. That's Mike. The paramedics raced over, but it was
4: quickly clear that this had been Mike's final ride. This launch was really supposed to be a publicity stunt, not the last run. Mike and Waldo built their rockets out of spare parts. They were hoping to catch the interest of investors to fund their ultimate goal of building a raccoon a part rocket, part balloon, that could launch Mike 62 miles up to the Kármán line, the border between
3: Earth's atmosphere and outer space, before he'd parachute back down. The idea was to make Mike the greatest derdell of all time, undisputed. He went to space, and we built it in our backyard. And see, the ability to build this stuff is never beyond your reach. Mike's
4: hope was that at that altitude, he could see what shape the planet really is. As Mike told CBS, he was open to being proved wrong.
1: The flat earth thing is like everything else to
3: me. I just want people to question everything. I expect to see uh, a flat disc up there. I don't have an agenda. If it's a a round earth or a ball, I'm gonna come down and say, hey guys, I'm bad. It's a ball. Mike grew up in Oklahoma City
4: and worked as a limo driver for years. Those who knew him say he was quiet and friendly, was devoted to his four cats, loved women, and worked hard. But Mike also had a lot of out there ideas. He was skeptical of science and gravity and the moon landing and 9-11, and he wasn't shy about sharing those views, like in this Fox interview.
3: You know, you start studying these different things, and one day the flat Earth popped up, and I go, holy moly. I think it's kind of like a bullseye. I think Mm -hmm. there's land outside of these different circles, and we don't know how big the circles go. Does that make sense? It's kind of like a a pizza that just kind of keeps growing. Waldo says Mike wasn't dumb. And while he did believe the earth is
4: flat, he was also working that angle to get attention. For the last decade of his life, Mike lived on a ranch that Waldo owns down a long, sandy road near the desert town of Apple Valley, about 90 miles northeast of Los Angeles. The name, El Ranchito Raquete, is inscribed above the gate, along with steer horns and a horseshoe. Vehicles in various states of construction
3: are scattered around. There's a car I'm working on. It's uh, 53 feet long and uh, can do right around Mach 3, supposedly.
4: Waldo is known in the daredevil community for designing and building rocket-powered cars and boats that break speed records. He first heard about Mike and his homemade rocket
3: through a friend back in 2008 and gave him a call. And he goes, do you want to see the rocket? And I said, you're building something? He goes, yeah, I got it built. He goes, do you want to see it? I'm like, hell yeah, I want to see it. Waldo says he gets lots of calls from people wanting to build
4: rocket-powered vehicles once they get the money. He was intrigued that Mike had gotten as
3: far as he did. And I looked at him, he goes, what do you think he's all proud of? I said, it's gonna kill you. It's a piece of crap, man. It just balances off. The fins are too small. You're sitting at the center of gravity, so the rocket will wanna rotate around. They go, "It's, it's horrible. For sure, it's gonna kill you. And he goes, can you teach me how to make it not kill me?
4: At the ranch, next to a double-wide mobile home, Waldo showed me around a makeshift museum stored inside five shipping containers. They're filled floor to ceiling with memorabilia devoted to fast cars, boats, and planes. There's an entire shipping container about daredevils. This is basically a museum dedicated to people who did amazing stuff. There are framed photos and magazine covers, kids' toys, even a couple of antique motorcycles harkening back to daredevils' past.
3: This area here starts out with the early daredevilry. Uh, the first person to go over Niagara Falls intentionally was Annie Edson Taylor, a 60-year-old uh, schoolteacher. There are figurines and posters of Evil Knievel, and then I spot a familiar face on the wall. It's Waldo. That's a picture of me hanging out of the back of a B-25 bomber at uh, 250 miles an hour and 5,000 feet. I took a selfie, I anchored myself, I hung my body out of the airplane and basically was held there by the airflow. This kind of behavior might seem insane to most
4: of us, but Waldo says that throughout history, innovative risk takers have driven some of our greatest advancements in travel. Glenn Curtis built and raced bicycles and motorcycles before he became the leading American manufacturer of aircraft and the pioneer of flying boats. Henry Ford raced cars before starting his own automobile company. The entire back section of the Daredevil exhibition feels like a
3: memorial to Mad Mike Hughes and his stunts. He held the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest limousine jump. He started out as a dirt bike racer, and he was really good. In fact, he won so many championships and stuff, he would throw the trophies away, (laughs) he didn't care about that. He just cared about the prize money and uh, the trophy girl. There are parachutes and parts of
4: rockets, framed photos of Mike and the crew, and even a cocktail shaker containing some of Mike's cremated remains. All of these objects speak to a life
3: lived to the extreme. I'll tell you something about Mike. He was the kind of guy who, like, when he was set on something, that was it. That's all he thought about. And he, would, he had a work ethic like I couldn't believe. He'd get up 6 o'clock in the morning. He'd be out here working here at the ranch until nighttime, not eat anything, not do anything, but work on his rocket. Waldo recalls a previous rocket launch that
4: nearly killed Mike. He was going about 350 miles an hour with a parachute designed
3: to deploy at 100 miles an hour. So he throws a shoot, and it just, just shreds like, like a confetti. And, but it was just enough to get him to the ground. He hit the ground, we figured, at 60 miles an hour. And he was in a walker for about three months. Once he got there, he could walk, started building his next rocket. He just was not going to stop. He figured that he was going to get famous enough that he was going to run for governor. Mike often spoke about wanting to
4: inspire people to follow their dreams, says Justin Chapman but he also wanted fame.
5: So much so that it killed him. I mean, he wanted his life to have some meaning because I think for a long time he felt like it didn't have a lot of meaning. And then, you know, he was disappointed as life went on that, you know, his name didn't catch on the way evil Knievels
4: did, even though he was doing these extreme stunts. Waldo thinks what motivated Mike was simple. Fame, chicks, money. He was into the whole hero thing. Toby Brusso is a filmmaker who made a documentary about Mike before he died called Rocket Man. He says Mike wanted the world to adore him.
2: Mike was trying to be relevant, trying to be loved the only way he knew how, right? And that was by being a stuntman, by doing these crazy things.
4: But what Mike mostly got instead, particularly from comedians and people on social media, was ridicule.
2: Smart enough to build a missile from scratch, yet stupid enough to climb inside.
0: My kind of crazy. Look, any idiot can sit in their bedroom uploading conspiracy theories to YouTube, but it takes a special idiot to launch himself into space for the cause.
4: Toby Bruso's movie painted a sympathetic picture of Mike and his efforts.
2: In the film, we wanted to find the pathos of Mike, the relatability and challenge people to see him as a person rather than this crazy conspiracy theorist. Because when it comes down to it, regardless of your belief, we all need a win in our lives, and Mike deserved a win.
4: But Mike never got that win. And Justin Chapman says it's hard to ignore the role that conspiracy theories played in his death. The decal on his rocket said research flat earth. The
5: conspiracy stuff radicalized him like so many people have in the past few years. He did his, quote-unquote, his own research on YouTube. I mean, the the level of disinformation and misinformation is really out of control. And Mike is a perfect example of the logical endpoint of that kind of radicalization.
4: Waldo
3: sees it differently. It was Mike's hubris that killed him. And uh, he became more and more and more famous. But the more and more famous he became, the more difficult he became, the more headstrong he became. Mike insisted on adding a
4: metal ladder to get into the rocket, even though Waldo and the team warned him that it would interfere with the launch. Here's Justin again.
5: What killed him was he didn't listen to Waldo and his team about some pretty basic safety measures.
4: Mike also refused to add
5: automatically deploying parachutes to the rocket. You know, he told Waldo, you know, I'm a daredevil.
4: If I can't pull the parachutes myself, I deserve what I get. Waldo says Mike knew the risks
3: he faced but he kept getting back in the rocket. Every time you get in one of these things, it's a 50-50 chance. You take those dice in your hand and you roll. them. Sometimes it comes up snake eyes.
4: Waldo doesn't regret teaching Mike how to build rockets. Even though it
3: cost Mike his life, he's proud of what they did together. This is how I want you to remember them. I want you to remember them jamming through the clouds at damn near the speed of sound. Okay, that's how I think of them. I get a little emotional when I say that. But that's how I want people to remember them. But on top of that, I want you to realize what he was saying. You can do anything. The only person stops you is you. To get out there and live life. He lived life, man. He lived it to the fullest. He really did. From Los Angeles, I'm Avishai
4: Artsy.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about thrill-seeking. What fuels this behavior? And when does it become dangerous or disruptive? We heard about stuntman and rocket builder Mike Hughes, who lost his life taking one too many huge risks. And when I talked to psychologist Ken Carter, he mentioned that these kinds of tragedies involving high-profile daredevils often create misconceptions. When Ken interviews thrill-seekers, he asks them, what do people misunderstand about you?
2: And they always say that people think that thrill-seekers have a death wish, but they don't. They always talk to me about having a life wish. They feel like engaging in these kinds of of activities that you can't get any other way of experiencing it except with those danger that's connected with it is the thing that really makes them feel closer to life. But they're willing to do those things for those experiences.
1: Yeah, it almost sounds like in those moments life becomes distilled down to its very essence. And the only things that matter are right there in this moment. So it sounds like a really intense experience.
2: Yeah. And the great thing, the fascinating thing to me is that a lot of the high sensation seekers I've talked to say they have that kind of calmness for hours or even days after doing those experiences. And so I feel like they're, they're doing it in order to feel connected with the world and connected with themselves.
1: What Ken was saying made me think about the documentary Free Solo. It follows rock climber Alex Honnold free climbing his way to the top of El Capitan Mountain at Yosemite National Park. No ropes, no security, one mistake, one misstep could lead to a deadly fall. There was a part of this film I didn't really understand until I talked to Ken, so I asked him about it. Did you watch the movie Free Solo? I watched part of it because it was terrifying to watch. (laughs) It is terrifying. You're watching the climber ascend vertical walls, wedging himself into small crevices to shimmy upwards using small ledges to hold onto to pull himself up inch by inch. You guys are all in position, ready to go? When he gets to the top, I felt, watching the movie, he seemed underwhelmed at having reached the top. You know, when he gets there and he sort of wanders around and he says... So delighted.
4: So delighted.
1: Like, you know, he just (laughs) made it to the top of this little hill or something. But now that you explained all this... I think it's because, to him, it was all about the experience of going up, not being up there. Yeah,
2: there's no struggle in being there. It's this, the, the 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 view is great, I'm sure, but I, and that you can't get in any other way. Uh, but getting up there and it, there's so much sensation to be to have on the way, and I think that's that that's a piece of the puzzle. I think.
1: When does thrill seeking become problematic? When does it interfere with other parts of people's lives?
2: Yeah, like I talked about before, that disinhibition and boredom susceptibility can predict, you know, h- how far you're willing to go in, in the quest for the for the experience. You know, it's it's not the danger that they're after. The danger is kind of the price of admission. The things they want to do, and sometimes if they're If they're not inhibited and they get bored too easily, they may create chaos in order to have that experience. We know that high sensation seekers aren't that good at backing down from arguments sometimes. In fact, sometimes they'll create arguments with friends because they love that experience of fighting with people. And so there are some high sensation seekers that create problems in their uh, relationships or at work because they're in the quest of those experiences.
1: Sometimes it also seems like sensation-seeking kind of crosses a line that has maybe disregard for the feelings of others or maybe even for the safety or, or lives of others. So when does this become problematic or perhaps even like more of a mental health issue?
2: There are some high sensation-seekers that can have trouble with empathy because, well, most of us believe that other people's experiences of the world are just like ours, right? That's, that's what we mo- most of us believe. And it's no different for high sensation seekers. So if you're in a car with a high sensation seeker driving, and you're the low sensation seeker, and they're darting in and out of traffic and driving really fast, they may not realize how terrified you are, because they're not terrified. They're really calm. And so sometimes high sensation seekers have trouble understanding how other people might experience the world. And they do get themselves into trouble sometimes. There are higher levels of of substance use conditions, um, even behavioral addictions like gambling in High Sensation Seekers. Some of them have trouble in relationships. I interviewed a woman that said, not only do I jump out of airplanes sometimes with parachutes, I jump out of perfectly good relationships because I get bored. And so being able to sort of contain that and sort of understand that is a challenge for some high sensation seekers, for sure.
1: That's Ken Carter. He's a professor of psychology at Oxford College of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. His book is called Buzz, Inside the Minds of Thrill Seekers, Daredevils and Adrenaline Junkies. Often what thrill seekers are looking for is a mix of adventure, danger, something to make them feel truly alive. For Duran Lamb, pushing the limits started out as something she saw as a healthy habit, something to replace her addiction to alcohol, until she realized it wasn't.
6: Nicole Curry has this profile. Growing up, Duran Lamb's
7: family was obsessed with extreme sports. Kind of Ironman style challenges and like pushing yourself and carrying things over mountains and snow. I come from that kind of family.
6: Doran and her parents hiked pretty large mountains. She remembers wandering through trails in the Snowdonia National Park in the UK and trudging her way through the snowy Larigrew mountain passes in Scotland. These mountains were so high that their peaks grazed the clouds.
7: And I can remember that, like, being amazed that I was in the clouds and that being, like, a, a key moment for me as a child.
6: Doran grew older and she stopped hiking. She doesn't recall when it happened or why. But in her 30s, Doran developed an addiction to alcohol. After a breakdown, she went to rehab. When she finished her program, she was determined to stay sober. During the last few days at the facility, people talked a lot about life after rehab.
7: What are you gonna do when you come out? You need something which is gonna replace that, that thrill. A lot of people who get into addiction are thrill seekers or enjoy the kind of the ups and downs of addiction to a certain extent. So there isn't sort of an element of like pushing yourself to the limit of life and then enjoying the feeling that you've done that.
6: Extreme sports were among those recommendations. And these kinds of activities were familiar to Doran because of her upbringing. So when she moved to China to teach there... A few months later, a friend invited her on a hiking trip to a nearby mountain. Once her feet met the ground and she began hiking with her friend, a powerful mix of joy, pride, and exhilaration consumed her.
7: I think when I got into it, I realized that it was giving me something more than just the exercise side of it. Like, it wasn't just about, oh, wow, isn't this beautiful? There was another level to that enjoyment, Like, there was definitely more of a thrill involved in it than just, oh, this is beautiful, and wow, look at the surroundings, you know. The enjoyment mainly came from how difficult it was.
6: Doran started to hike a lot and sought out more and more challenging paths. She went on an excursion to Four Sisters Mountain, a series of four snow-capped peaks in Tibet. Together with 10 other climbers, she was going to hike a mountain with an altitude of more than 5,000 meters, or 16,000 feet at the peak. This climb would take a few days, so she packed her gear, different layers of clothing, and a large stash of chocolate that she couldn't do without.
7: So you started the climb like at 1,000, where it was like really, really hot, and then you're just adding layers, and then base camp. A lot of people already sick at base camp.
6: The altitude was already affecting climbers. Altitude sickness is sometimes referred to as mountain sickness. It's when the body has difficulty adjusting to reduced oxygen levels at a higher altitude. It makes people dizzy, nauseous, or it just feels like you can't breathe. So when this happened, members of Doran's hiking group were calling it quits. But she kept going.
7: It was only as we started the climb in the morning that I just, I realized how much the altitude was having an impact on me. And I think other people could see too, because I just, I was, with breathing, I was struggling quite a lot more than the other people.
6: And Doran kept pushing. She was so close to reaching the top of the mountain.
7: It was just in the last bit that I realized that I wasn't sure how much further I was going to be able to make it. I didn't say that but I just got this feeling that I wanted to get back down quite quickly and then it was only the last couple of very small section where you can see the top that I just went into, I I can't really remember anything, I went into complete meltdown and I just I didn't want to do it I I do vaguely remember saying to the leader I don't think I can do this last bit and he was like it's just there I had this sort of grey kind of like dazed look on my face And he kind of was like, come on, you know, let's just do it. And I pushed myself to go up. And then as I got to the top, for me, it's a complete blackout.
6: When Doran came to her senses, she was puzzled and lost about what had happened. Her climbing group helped her put the pieces back together. First, she told the group that she didn't feel well. Then she felt very warm and began taking her coat, hat and jumper off. The group tried to stop her, but she resisted until she began falling asleep in their arms. And then they had no choice but to carry her down the mountain and supply her oxygen. Doran's blackout was a severe case of altitude sickness. Fortunately, the condition can resolve itself when you return to a lower altitude. So Doran did that, and she felt a lot better after returning home, but...
7: After I did it, and after I was sick, That was something that was appealing to me.
6: Instead of being scared by her close brush with disaster, that exhilarating and thrilling feeling returned. She wanted to go on her next adventure.
7: I spent my whole day in a kind of like a real, I don't know, like in a real like addiction mode through my phone for hours looking for the next climb and when I could do it, right?
6: This behavior started to feel oddly familiar. And not in a good way.
7: I think it was after that one that I realized the fact that I wanted to do another climb as soon as possible. Why would I want to do that? And I I couldn't tell anyone that I was planning to do another climb because they were all so concerned anyway that I'd been so ill. The idea that it was really quite dangerous appealed to me as much as doing the activity did. It
6: was the possibility of danger that was driving her. The thrill of it all. After this realization, she began writing about this experience and wondered,
7: was this just another addiction for her? I remember it being talked about in rehab as a problem, that some people replace it, but they go too far. But a little bit of it is okay. So it's sort of like, well, actually, you are better to be you know, climbing a mountain or bungee jumping than shooting up heroin. However, I think the, the concern is that, you know, you can just be replacing one thing with another, which is also what you're taught a lot about in rehab, is that you have to be very careful with cross addiction or like secondary addiction.
6: Doran discovered that balance is critical for recovery. She says addiction never really goes away but it's important to be intentional about your choices and what you're getting out of them in this case you'd really have to ask yourself why am i doing this what am i expecting in return
7: but only you know when it's it's more about the risk and less about the being outdoors and like feeling alive you know only you know that right
6: doran is climbing mountains again but she's learned to be more mindful and careful about her experience.
7: I think now if somebody said to me, "Oh, do you want to climb a mountain?" I think, "Yeah," and it wouldn't be yeah because I might die doing it and wouldn't that be fun? It's yeah because I'd really like to go and experience that. I'd like to get up in the snow and I'd like to to, you know, feel alive, right?
1: That's Doran Lamb. She is a teacher and she writes a blog about mental health, addiction and recovery. Nicole Curry reported her story. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, there definitely are benefits to being a thrill seeker.
2: These are the first responders. These are the individuals that can be calm. and, And when all these things are going
1: on, that's next on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about thrill seekers and what fuels the desire for adventure. Psychologist Ken Carter has been researching these behaviors for his book called Buzz, and he found that people who are thrill seekers tend to stay calm and super focused in situations that seem scary or chaotic to others. When does that personality profile come in handy? Where does it push people to perhaps, you know, try new things and be really successful and take risks? I could see it being a very beneficial trait to have. Absolutely. We really need
2: and our society benefits from high sensation seekers a lot. These are the first responders. These are the individuals that can be calm. And and when all these things are going on, willing to try and experiment with new foods, willing to really engage in new cultures without that anxiety. They're really good at sort of intercultural communication because that's interesting and exciting to them. These are those individuals that sort of help sort of push our society along and, and help to protect us. Um, but we also need people like me <laughs> who can be sort of calm and cautious. So I think this balance in our society of having high sensation seekers, average and low sensation seekers are the things that make it work well.
1: As you were speaking, I was kind of thinking about the personality profile of, of a lot of people we tend to admire as a society, people who are explorers and people who were astronauts and those who went to the moon for the first time, like they must all have that, that profile to some degree.
2: Absolutely. You know, I interviewed a woman who was training for the Canadian Space Agency and we were talking about if you watch Star Trek or Star Wars, being in, being in space seems like a really serene, quiet thing, but it's loud and it's stinky and it's noisy. And there's in those spaceships we have now, we haven't gotten to those clean ones yet. So there's a lot of really complicated things you have to be able to do in really, really chaotic experiences.
1: Ken says to parlay thrill-seeking into being great at a tough job, it's all about riding the wave just right. Channel the desire for excitement and don't let boredom get to you. For example,
2: like emergency room physicians, there are a lot of those individuals um, and nurses also in in, in uh, first responders that do have that component that makes them calm and focused and can know exactly what to do in those situations, but can also tolerate it pretty okay when there's a not not a lot going on.
1: Do we have any idea of when and how this trait is formed? Does it seem to run in families or does it form during adolescence? Like when does it come about? It does tend to run in families and there may be some environmental
2: things that influence that. I talked to one of these individuals that I called fearless foodies who will eat almost anything. He's probably also feeding his kids interesting and unusual foods as well, which can influence their taste over time. But we also know that a lot of it may be genetic as well that influences these chemicals Research seems to show that it peaks in early adolescence um, when certain other chemicals in our body are pretty high. For example, testosterone in both men and women tends to peak at that time. But there are also some environmental things that influence the kinds of things that people tend to do as they get older. Um, In my book, I talked about them as anchors. I mean, there are certain things that uh, as we get older, we have more to lose and we might not want to take risks that will put those things at, at, at in harm's way.
1: If you are a parent raising a child who is very clearly a thrill seeker, is there a way to channel this like to to say this is a good quality, but here are some of the caveats. Here are some of the red flags. yeah, I think sort of getting them
2: involved in activities that may have high sensation seeking linked to it could be helpful, whether or not it's like physical activity like a, you know a group fitness classes or adventure clubs can be a great way to do that, but also to look at you know making sure they they are assessing their risks realistically. Even everyday adolescents aren't that good at predicting how risky things are. And high sensation seekers can be probably more more likely to, to create problems for themselves. So just keeping a check on that would be something I would do.
1: And what about the sort of the other side of the coin? So you are a low sensation seeker. I am that way for sure. Is there something we could learn from from others who, who are high sensation seekers? Is there a way we could or should perhaps push ourselves a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest thing I feel like I learned from high sensation seekers is that like not liking something or having a bad time isn't the worst thing in the world, right? I'm the kind of person that like, you know, I'll order the same kinds of things at restaurants because I know I really like them, but... You know, high high sensation seekers have taught me that, you know, trying an unusual food, the worst thing that can happen is that you that you don't like it, right? And another thing I I always talk about is that there's a study that looked at sort of worry where they had people write down a list of everything they were worried about, and they followed up a couple of weeks later to say, "Hey, did this thing happen that you were worried about? And also, how did you handle it?" And they discovered that about 80% of the things that people were worried about never really happened. And a lot of low sensation seekers like myself sort of occupy our minds with what I call recreational anxiety, where we try to plan out things. And here's a plan B, a plan C, a plan D for everything. High sensation seekers, most of the ones I've talked to, they trust themselves and they just throw themselves into situations. And more likely than not, they work out. And so... I try to remind myself of that when I'm going through that because I feel like a lot of high sensation seekers trust their bodies. They trust themselves to figure things out. And, I, and I've and i tried to learn to trust myself a little bit more.
1: Yeah. Is there anything you tried over the course of researching this book that was like a thrill-seeking activity for you? Um no, not a lot
2: I' <laughs> I was tempted with a lot of things jumping off of buildings, trying a pig ear sandwich, trying lots of unusual foods i no, I take it back. We did a taste test of unusual ice cream flavors from from an ice cream shop, and I tried some flavors that I wouldn't normally try that's a that's that's pushing myself as a very, very low sensation seeker. <laughs>
1: That's Ken Carter. He's a professor of psychology at Oxford College of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the author of Buzz, Inside the Minds of Thrill Seekers, Daredevils and Adrenaline Junkies. Now, I think I've made it pretty clear that I'm not a thrill seeker, but there is one sort of adventurous thing that I do like, and that's swimming in really cold water, which I got a chance to do last weekend. I was in Maryland by the Elk River. It's been a cold spring and the water hasn't had a chance to warm up much, but still, I started to wade in. (laughs) Oh my gosh, wow, oh man. What am I doing? <laughs> oh wow So this feels like If you Imagine like A glass of ice water With about 5 ice cubes in it This is what this feels like So I'm going in I'm about into my knees now Ooh! Ooh. Oh yeah That's cold Huh? Oh. I handed okay. my phone to my daughter it so that she could keep recording phone. as I braced myself for the plunge. Alright, and then Helena, you have to capture the rest. Alright, right, don't All right. drop my phone. Five, four,
4: this is a pressure moment, three, two, one, zero. Head is under, mommy is in. You did it! Woo!
1: This is freezing. But when you come out, it feels so good. just feels like you're totally alive. Totally alive. So that's what I love about it. All right. One more dunk. See you later. Bye. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tang, and Jad Slayman. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
0: Support
6: for NPR and the following message come from Satva. Satva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but
1: because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit slash npr and save an additional
0: $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice. But you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com.
6: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually
1: go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q and A.